Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, it's good to be back. Yes. Um, well, thank you. Um, in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel like I've been gone. Um, so, um, because we're right back where we were. Um, we're in Titus uh, chapter three, and I, I would ask you to turn to Titus three, um, verses one through seven. Um, it was very worthwhile, though. I appreciate um, just the gift of the sabbatical um, so much. And, um, but, you know, honestly, I'm just ready to get back to doing what we always do, if that's okay with you. So um, here we are, Titus chapter 3. Um, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, what we're calling being ready for every good work. Um, I will tell you this, just because you may be curious, um, for the next 16 weeks straight, I'll be preaching. So in case you're wondering, um, when you get another break from me, it's going to be a while, all right? So um, just kind of know it's going to be like that for a bit. But um, today's text is a, a, grid, a good place to kind of jump back into um, what I hope had become a familiar um, letter to us, um, this letter to Titus. Um, and Paul moves right back into a very familiar pattern um, he's going to share some expectations of Christian behavior um, that directly contradict worldly behavior. Um, and then he's going to remind us that our glorious salvation in Jesus Christ should make um, that unique Christian behavior normative. Okay? It shouldn't be unusual when a Christian has different values and different beliefs and different behaviors than the broken culture around us. In fact, that should be typical of a believer, okay? Um, salvation is so good, so gracious, so entirely life-changing um, that it should be able to take uh, the worst Cretan, you know, Paul's words. We talked about uh, a Cretan and some of their um, behavior patterns that weren't so good. It should be able to take the worst Cretan and make them an entirely new creation. Um, that's the point, and, and it's all going to be bathed again in the language of good works, um, language which we've seen before. Um, you may remember Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Um, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Those are the, the Cretans that had not been changed by God, that were resisting the work of God. Um, uh, they weren't doing any good works. But then um, Titus 2.14. Um, Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Um, believers in Christ should not be like Cretans, um, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, but we should be zealous for good works. And I understand something. It's driven home in this text, but we need to say it explicitly. Good works are determined by God, okay? Uh, the culture doesn't tell us what good works were or are, are. The broken culture isn't the one that tells us how we should behave and how we should live and, and what we should do. God determines how we should do that. And so good works are authored by God, and they're done through the kingdom values, okay? And, and we'll see that again consistently. And then we turn to today's text in verse 1. Remind them, remind believers who are seeking after good works to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready um, for every good work. Um, ultimately, this section stands as a contrast to um, Titus chapter 1, um, verses 10 through 16. If you remember that, it's been six or seven weeks, I guess. But um, the section that, that ended there um, with that manifestation or that, that list of um, those who profess to know God but deny Him, 
um, by their works, those who are detestable, disobedient, um, unfit for any good work. Um, God forbid that that um, description be true of the body of Christ um, anytime, ever. Uh, but on Creed, I believe the jury was still out. And, and so Paul continues his, his admonition of good works here, and that's where we are. Um, so why don't you stand out of reverence, respect for the Word of God. Let's read Titus 3, um, verses 1 through 7. Um, Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, uh, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, um, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You may be seated. Now, I'll confess to you, I've I, I recognized one thing. Um, it's not about the passage, sorry. But um, having been out on sabbatical and having not taught um, and only been with my family and um, a few church planners and things, I, I'll realize this. I talk really, really fast, don't I? Um, when, I when I'm preaching. I've had people say that to me before, and I've resisted believing them. But um, I haven't talked really fast in five weeks, and it's... Uh, sort of catching up to me. I may need to do some cardio um, in preparation of resuming preaching. But um, anyway, uh, there's a lot here, and I have to talk faster. You're here all day, and, and I know I get those complaints too, so we, we got to talk fast. Anyway, uh, let's break down the passage, all right? Uh, two very simple sections. Um, we're going to talk about this idea um, of being ready for every good work in our culture, and then we'll look at it in terms of um, how being in Christ is really what positions us to do that, okay? Uh, a lot of folks um, call this section a treatise on Christian conduct in the world, um, how we should behave in the lost world and the broken culture around us, and I think it's clearly that. And here's what I think we have to keep in mind. You cannot convince anyone of a truth you're not living, okay? Um, I believe one of the reasons why the broken culture rejects Christianity in the day that we're living in is because very few Christians actually live like Christians. Um, and so our hypocrisy undermines our witness. Um, our behavior in a broken culture matters. And understand, in all this, I'm saying our behavior should be different. If we're living just like the lost world, then there's nothing for them to, to hunger after, to thirst after. They don't see a difference, okay? Um, our behavior should be radically different um, than the madness around us. Um, but instead, I think we're living in an age in which the broken culture has invaded the church, and the church is beginning to look like the culture around us. Um, Jeremiah 29, 7. This is not a new line. This is not a New Testament thought. It's very, very old. Um, Seek the welfare of the city um, where I've sent you into exile. These are the, um, the, the Jews. Um, they had been judged of God. They've been sent into exile as a punishment. Um, but look how he asked them to live in the broken, hedonistic culture around them and pray to the Lord on its behalf, the behalf of this city. Um, for its, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
welfare. What he's really saying is uh, the Jews were a city set up on a hill. They were supposed to worship Jehovah God. They're now in captivity in a sense. They're in exile living among a broken culture, and they're supposed to do good in that culture so that that culture would benefit from their influence. Okay? They're not supposed to get angry and isolate themselves. Um, they're not supposed to um, burn it all down. They're supposed to be witnesses as to what Jehovah does in their lives. And in so doing, the culture around them is benefited. That's the point. It had always been true for Israel. And it's even more true, I believe, for believers today. But let's put a little detail to it. We start with uh, a dirty word in so many circles. This idea of being submissive. Um, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, um, to be ready for every good work. Um, submissive is a tough word. Um, it was tough when we looked um, several weeks ago, I, I think, for um, when we looked at younger women's roles and older women's roles and that idea of submissive came up. Um, tough for ladies to hear. I think in a broken culture, it's tough um, for any believer to hear. I think when you're surrounded by a wicked, broken culture. And, and God says, well, remind them, the believers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. What does it mean in context? Paul was exhorting Titus to remind the believers in the Cretan church to have a cooperative attitude um, with the rulers and authorities around them, uh, meaning just all the civil authorities. And understand something, when this was written, they were not living in a democracy, okay? Um, they were living in an authoritarian um, government scenario where there were dictators and there were rulers from Rome, and um, they had no ability to interact with the government around them. They didn't get to vote in elections. And what Paul's saying is, um, be... Um, submissive to rulers and authorities be obedient um, and and try to bend that to, to being ready for every good work not what they tell you to do necessarily but those things you know you can do to benefit the culture that you're in now and with all that said let me make sure I think there is a reason to to view this through um, the modern lens for us we don't live in the exact same government structure we live in a democracy Okay, um, and I know this is where you know I have a political science degree. I've tried to forget it, but every once in a while it comes out. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves that our government functions different, right? And we live in a place where it's supposed to be um, for the people, by the people. Anybody ever read that in their constitution or anything? Um, all I'm simply saying is it's going to look a little bit different when we get to live in an age when we're supposed to have the ability to have opinions and to interact with um, government officials. To um, We even have the ability to have petitions and whatnot, and um, I know we've been criticized for doing that. I do not believe he's saying just go with the flow and do whatever especially when we have an opportunity in our culture today to be um, engaged in the political process. Now, I do think he's sort of telling us, don't be a jerk about it. Um, be careful how you behave. Be respectful of those in places of authority. But cooperation does not always mean agreement, okay? Um, but a voluntary acceptance of leaders and certainly a willingness to participate in activities um, that promote the welfare of the community, I think that's what he's talking about. That's the phrase, to be ready for every good work. And that's going to be determined by God's standards, okay? Now, please let me say this explicitly. Christians are not anarchists or rebels, okay? 
Um, uh, we're humanitarians, if you want to put it in a cultural way. But never forget the Great Commission uh, or Paul's ultimate underlying theme in this book, which is how good work should lead others to Christ. We can be respectful of earthly leaders while serving and answering kingdom values and answering to Christ's kingdom and trying to do those things that would help the lives of all those around us in a way um, to honor and please God. And I believe ultimately when any government, any church, any city aspires to those values that God values, everyone will benefit. So it's okay to say, hey, have we, have we thought about the ramifications of this? Have we considered um, what right and wrong is? Have we considered morality? It's okay to do that, all right? But it's not okay to be a jerk about it. He's not exhorting the church to be submissive and cooperative with ungodly rulers because those rulers are always right, but because by being winsome, by engaging in good deeds, we, we bring glory to Christ, and some might find him as their Savior. And again, they will not find him as their Savior if we do not lift up God's standards. Um, Romans 12, 18. If possible, though, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I could go through past events, and, and I've sort of turned the page all that. I don't want to do that. Just know um, that I have no apologies to make. Um, I have no relationships that have been broken in our community over uh, our stands on uh, abortion or casinos or whatever it may be. Haven't publicly attacked anyone. Haven't raised my voice with anyone. Haven't grandstanded in any meetings. There are rumors that I have, and those are lies. Okay? Um, we've done things respectfully. Um, we're going to continue as a biblical church to have opinions that reflect the Bible. And at times, we're going to have to engage in our community and express our opinions. And we're going to do it kindly. We're going to do it gently. We're going to do it responsibly. And we're going to do it always with an attitude, how can we serve? How can we make a difference for Jesus in our community? But we're not going to say that we're just going to always do what everybody tells us to do because that's what it means to be a believer in 2023. That's not biblical. So just know that um, as we go along. You may disagree with the way um, I, I've laid this out. Um, I know it's a tough balance, um, but I believe we have fulfilled the biblical mandate of loving those things God loves without failing to comply with the heart of this passage. Um, he who never stands for anything, well, he falls for everything. Um, and I do not believe that's God's call um, neither is the answer to be barbaric at every turn um, and to be angry political activists either. Um, you pray about it, you think about it, um, you be wise, you seek good, and then you take steps. I believe we've done that respectfully. But um, the next verse, I think, continues to frame the balance. Um, be supportive. Um, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, um, to avoid quarreling, um, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, to all people. Perfect courtesy toward all people is a beautiful phrase. Um, it, it implies meekness and gentleness, um, which, as Jesus modeled, is strength under control. Um, and again, it implies we should treat uh, elected officials with perfect courtesy. Uh, you should treat pastors with perfect courtesy. We should treat one another with perfect courtesy. It applies all the way around. Um, again, it doesn't mean that we abandon biblical values in order to keep peace. Um, but when we disagree with someone, we don't have to be disagreeable. Uh, I love how Charles Spurgeon has put it. Kindness and gentleness are two of the ornaments of our faith. Unholy contentiousness is not after the mind of Christ. Um, 
And again, I, I think kindness and gentleness should start in this place with one another uh, and then move outward. Um, the word here for quarreling um, is much more akin to our modern word for slander. Um, it's talking about falsely discrediting someone's reputation. It's talking about uh, uh, hitting below the belt, so to speak. It's talking about saying things that are not true. Um, it's one thing to speak truth about hard things. It's another to lie or, or distort. And a, and a believer should never lie or distort. Um, again, I've mentioned it earlier today, but uh, many of you know I walked away from my degree and in, in career in political science because it was a career filled with hatred um, and lies and deceits and I hate to say it but a lot of people play games in politics and um, I don't have a whole lot of tolerance for that um, I, I really do sincerely believe that someday my legacy will be someone who meant what he said and said what he meant and I'm not too hard to understand you know I'm pretty plain um, and I don't have time for games and I don't have much toleration for deceit um, I'll tell you my opinion and we'll move on uh, anyway we're called um, to show perfect courtesy to all people a continuing demonstration of humility but let's be honest is that the way the broken culture around us acts um, and it's, it's not now the church imitating the world rather than this admonition um, on, on how we should behave from God's word. Um, we should not be divisive, especially inside these walls. First Peter um, 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself um, to him who judges Justly, uh, James 3, um, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, in context, I think we would all agree that uh, the Christian life, uh, as Paul is describing it, um, even this pursuit of good works while being respectful and, and never distorting truth about those around us that we may disagree with, that should stand um, as a radically different thing um, than the worldly Cretan image that Paul has been sharing in this book of Titus. Um, it's, there's supposed to be a contrast. And now he drives home why there is a contrast and, and really where the power to be uh, that kind of contrast comes from. And what does it truly mean to be in Christ? We talked about being a Christian in culture. Now we talk about being in Christ. And before we progress too far down this path, let me point out the obvious. Um, it's an obvious thing that Paul continues to repeat. Um, verses 1 and 2 are only possible because of the gospel. You can't just decide you're going to be a good boy, okay? It, it doesn't work that way. You can't decide you're going to be different. Um, uh, verses 1 and 2 are only possible because of the gospel. The gospel is the basis for all right Christian behavior. Now, he highlights the ethical and practical changes made possible through Christ's great redemptive work. And we've got to understand, um, really even before we examine that, what we're like before the redemptive work of Jesus. Okay, you, you can't process what it means to be in Christ unless you're willing to be honest about what it means when you were out of when you were before Christ, so to speak. And um, what were you like apart from being in Jesus? Well, Paul never forgets. First Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul was always willing to admit um, that before coming to know Jesus. He was as wicked and as broken as anyone. But let's consider our own position. 
okay? Um, we start with an understanding of our godlessness. Um, verse 3, for we ourselves, um, and again, this is written to believers about their lives before they came to know Jesus. Um, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. <laughs> that sounds like a good family reunion right there, doesn't it, you know? Um, that's how the Cretans were behaving, okay? And, and this, in some level, to some degree, if we're being honest, is how we all behaved before we came to know Jesus. The real question becomes, have we changed at all? Because we should have, all right? Now, if, if you deny that this is at least in some ways indicative of your life before you came to know Jesus, then you're fooling yourself. Okay, without God, we all have an incredible capacity for sin, and the reality is an incapacity for true uh, justice and piety and, and even sobriety. Uh, you may have been nicer than the next guy as a lost person by genetics or nurture or whatever it may have been. You might have been a pretty kind person. But the reality is you were still wicked. Sin um, derides God. It disobeys God. It dictates evil passions. It detests the things of God, and it destroys lives, sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly. Um, but all of us were entrapped by it. If you didn't reap the whirlwind when you were trapped in your lostness, it was only by the grace of God, uh, the sheltering, gracious hand of God that prevented you from coming to the end of all that. Um, because you and I, we were all capable of being the worst of the worst. And some of us would say, yeah, I get it, I was, okay? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the human condition without Jesus. Uh, Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul's point is very, very simple. Our past should motivate us to love the unsaved because we were once just as they were. Um, we're, we're no better or different than them. Um, it's just now we've been blessed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and there's nothing we did apart from the graciousness of God in order to be saved. Okay, It was not of us, it's of him. So next we move to what is obvious. From our godless, godlessness, we move to his graciousness and I should say before we plunge in here um, that verses 4 through 7 uh, they're actually one single skillfully composed sentence in the Greek language it's honestly one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation and sanctification in, in all of scripture and so we're going to kind of take a moment to, to appreciate it, I, I think. We're going to read it here in one segment. Um, I would ask you to go ahead and stand again uh, as we read this. And if you're um, wanting a, a simple way to make sure I'm reading out of the ESV, it's a good translation. It's not the only good translation. Um, but just so we're all seeing the same words the same way, I've put it on your sermon outlines on the back. Um, if you flip over there, you've got verses 4 through 7 written out. Um, again, I'm not saying the ESV, there's lots of good translations. Um, this is just one that kind of helps us all see it the same way. But let's read um, Titus uh, 3, verse 4. I'll just read it aloud to you. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
Anybody willing to say amen to that? Amen. amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's just <laughs> the more you study it and the more you read it, the more beautiful it gets. And I hope we can do it justice uh, this morning. But um, we start um, with the rightful emphasis here on God's part. Um, as personified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You start with an understanding of revelation as you break down the graciousness of God here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's uh, referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've already seen Paul emphasize this, um, the appearance or the incarnation of Christ in Titus 2, uh, 11. Uh, for the grace of God has appeared, um, bringing salvation for all people and it's just a reminder that the revelation of Jesus Christ was his initiation um, God did it God planned it before the um, the foundations of the world this was God's plan for the redemption of man and so the revelation of God does not come by any of our insight by our intellect by our culture any of those things it comes by the initiation of a holy God he said he would come and he would make a way for us and redeem us from our sin and so that emphasis is driven home here as we begin this look at this section on the on the gospel um, we have to understand that he came to us because we were godless um, without Christ and we were all sinners in need of a savior we were all lost like sheep and God stooped to us in that condition he, he revealed himself to us he took on flesh he dwelt among us he, he died defeated death hell and the grave he made it possible for us to be saved it's the most beautiful expression of his goodness and loving kindness um, in that while we were still his enemies, he appeared and he died for us. That's the gospel. That's what we're, I believe, called as, um, as a church to preach and teach to the broken culture. Um, that's the, the good news presented to any of you here this morning. Uh, say, I, I don't know Jesus, like you're talking about knowing Jesus. Well, he, he came for you. Uh, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's an individual decision that we all have to make. We have to believe in who he was and what he did and the price he paid on the cross. And the belief begins with an, a willing to admit that we're sinners that we need a Savior, that we're broken. Um, a, a willingness to look out, and I know this is countercultural, but a willingness to admit that the culture outside of the, the walls of the church is broken and needs a Savior. It's not getting better, it's getting worse, friends. And I, I don't say that to condemn anyone. I'm simply saying, without Jesus, we're all broken. Um, and without Jesus, we're all going to get worse, not better. And so we have to see our need. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So please hear me plainly. Yes, this passage, this book, if we're honest about it, emphasizes good works. But it sure never teaches that good works can save us. That's not what this text is saying. No, 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 no. We're godless without Jesus. Okay, Jesus saves. He, he appeared to us in our need. He made our salvation possible through his goodness and his loving kindness, his graciousness. It is mercy undeserved. It's totally unearned, and that makes it all the more beautiful. But also, we've got to understand that what Christ accomplished, you might say, positionally, uh, redeeming us, forgiving us, cleansing us. Yeah, I would be the first to tell you that because of what Jesus has done in my life, I am positionally forgiven, redeemed, and cleansed, okay? Um, because of what Jesus has done to make that possible, the Holy Spirit now um, 
makes active in us on a daily basis. And that's what makes good works possible, okay? And that's where we go next. And we'll break this down a little bit more, hopefully. Try not to use a bunch of church words and make it complicated. Trying to make the, maybe the complicated simple. But um, let's follow the path of the text. You start with the revelation of God. God came to us in our sins. Then we see regeneration. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, regeneration is a very good biblical word. Again, it's kind of one of those uh, intellectual words, perhaps, but it's actually drawn directly from Scripture. Um, in Greek, it's the combination of, of two words, palin and genesis. Um, words that at least one of those two we're somewhat familiar with. Palin means again. Genesis means birth. And they combine to form palingenesia. That's what regeneration literally is in Greek. Um, regeneration, born again. Um, so when you hear somebody preaching about how you have to be born again, they're not, they're not, that's not a church phrase. That's a biblical phrase. That's a God phrase. We all need to be born again. Um, we all need the new birth. Regeneration refers to God giving new life to someone uh, that sinner, condemned, unclean, separated from a holy God, that needs new life, new birth, a new self, new heart, a new creation. And on a cosmic level, it's not just palingenesia for you and I. We're not the only things to be born again. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I believe there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. All that has been broken will be born again, in a sense. We can't fathom what all that's going to look like. Um, and so it's best to keep our minds on the things we can't understand. What's it look like when you and I, sinners condemned and unclean, are saved and redeemed by Jesus and we're born again? That we can see, or we should be able to see. Of course, I love the, the closing admonition there. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It's all going to be made new. Why not get with the program now and allow him to make you new today? Uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's that um, you're, you're putting on the new self, and the new self is not a better you, it's Jesus. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. John 3 goes right into this idea of the new birth. Uh, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about being uh, born as a, a babe. You're, you're born of water, uh, but then you're born again in the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Palingenesia, new birth, regeneration. Now, I hope it's clear by context that this transformation is not based on human effort but the work of God. And that we were once enslaved but he saved us and, and freed us again if you're in Christ. And so when Paul speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewal here, um, it's a spiritual cleansing that he's referring to, new birth. And yet despite the context, it saddens me to admit to you that there are many, many people and many, many denominations who will read this and they try to conclude that Paul is teaching that you must be baptized in order to be saved. 
I hope you can see by context, there's no way that's what Paul means. Listen to the beginning of verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay? Works done by us in righteousness. Well, what would those be? It would be any works done by us. Okay? He saved us outside of anything we could possibly do, righteous or otherwise. There are no good works that save you. Baptism doesn't save you. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Tithing doesn't save you. Church attendance doesn't save you. There is nothing you can do to be saved except believe and trust that Jesus Christ made a way for you and He is the Savior of the world. That's what saves us. That's where regeneration is. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, being born again, okay, and renewal, of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. He saved us by His mercy, uh, by the new birth, uh, the second birth, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. And then there is an ongoing work that is more than being hinted at in this text, which is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you have revelation, you have regeneration, then you have renewal. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Anyone here really think that you fully arrived spiritually on the day of your salvation? I hope there's no one who believes that. Because again, the, the second birth, the new birth, is a lot like the first birth. You're born as a babe in Christ. You have to feed on the milk of God's Word. You have to be taught. You have to be discipled. You have to be in a religious community where you sharpen one another. There's a, there's a process to it, but let's make sure we understand what Paul emphasizes, which there must be a surrender to the Spirit of God, the real power. The Word has no power apart from the Spirit. The preaching of God's Word has no power from, the par from apart from the Spirit. The Spirit of God has to take up residence, and again, when you're saved, it, He does but then you have to yield to the Spirit on a daily basis. That's where real renewal occurs. There's new birth, and then there's daily renewal. And, and if I would put it simply, I would tell you that a sabbatical for me was a time uh, of, of spiritual renewal, and I'm thankful for that. And the reality is that's a process that should happen every single day, every single week, every single month. Sometimes you have to set apart a time and, and a special series of events and, and you do some things different um, to embrace that renewal, but hopefully you've all established patterns of, of Christian behavior that moves you toward daily renewal day in and day out. Those are spiritual disciplines. And uh, again, none of those things work outside of the power of the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit's work that we're talking about. We're all still trapped in the flesh on this side of eternity until Christ's final work of, of new creation is really completed and we receive a heavenly body and a, and a new body, so to speak. Between now and then, we need daily renewal by the Spirit of God. Washing speaks of our cleansing from the defilement of sin at the moment of salvation, but the inner spiritual regeneration of an individual believer occurs day in and day out. Do not be conformed to this world, uh, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and this is where all this talk about um, 
What, what is good work uh, according to God? What is uh, kingdom values? Why does that matter? Why are we, why have I been so clear in saying, you know what, if, if our community wants to do something wicked, we should register our opposition and we should work. It's because the Spirit of God compels us to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and we should advocate for that. That's, that's, that's our calling, that is our witness, that is who we're supposed to be. If you just want to become mindless um, servants of the culture, go for it, but that's not biblical. Not if you've been saved and redeemed. The church should be different. The church should be set apart. Believers in Jesus should, should be renewed by the Spirit every day, and your values should look like the values of Jesus Christ, not like the values of a broken culture. Now, this text emphasizes do that in a winsome way, but you know what? Sometimes when you do it in a winsome way, people still don't like what you're doing, and they say hateful things, but that doesn't make them right and you wrong. How you respond to that could make you wrong. But anyway, this is talking about the renewal work of the Holy Spirit. Longer passage, but it's, it's so simple. Um, 1 John 1, 6-10. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we are in darkness... Um, we, we lie and do not practice the truth But if we walk in the light as he is in the light We have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin If we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us If we confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness If we say we've not sinned We make him a liar and his word is not in us It's talking about the need for daily renewal there's even more good news here, though. Notice the last phrase in verse 6. Um, By the washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's nothing halfway about this process or transaction, or you might even say daily battle. All believers are given all of the Holy Spirit that we're ever going to get, and, and all, good news, all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to need. And we should be excited about that. Uh, poured out richly can be translated full measure. It's so beautiful. It's meaning that God has made ample provision for the development of the renewed life, really both now and later. I, I love how Oswald Chambers puts it. Sanctification is an impartation. It's a gift, I believe, authored by the Holy Spirit, secured by the Holy Spirit, living and active in our life. It's not an imitation. This is not a, well, well, just act like Jesus. No, 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 no. The goal, see, is to say, I want to act like Jesus, and I understand that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that I can do that. That's the way this process actually works. The Spirit has to be driving it. Now, the reality, though, is that there's no excuse for not being changed and renewed, for not having good works, for not looking different than the average Cretan because the Holy Spirit has been lavished upon us, and we have all we need to be regenerated and renewed. But that work only begins on this side of eternity. There's another side, and that's where we finish. Riches. Revelation, regeneration, renewal, riches. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why does He lavish us with such an amazing gift of, of rebirth and then renewal? Uh, why does He pour out His Spirit richly? Well, we could say a lot, but in the context of this passage, because we're saved and redeemed, He does all this because we're heirs. 
um, because we're joint heirs with Christ. We're brought into His family as sons and daughters with full rights of inheritance. And that real inheritance, the final fulfillment of that inheritance, waits for us in heaven. It's the hope of eternal life. And on this side of eternity, we should be citizens of His kingdom more than we are of any culture, any community, any democracy. We should be taking on a family likeness now because our citizenship is stored up in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That speaking of the final full work of, of uh, renewal or rebirth when we're given heavenly bodies and, and all that's old and the old flesh is fully stripped away, but between the moment of our salvation and the final fulfillment of the recreation of all that's been broken, we should have a family likeness and we should be surrendering to the Holy Spirit and we should be becoming more and more like Jesus. And sometimes that causes conflict inner conflict the flesh battles the spirit and and all these things sometimes it'll cause conflict between you and a family member or you and someone in the broken culture because the things of jesus are not the things of the broken world but ultimately why are we justified so that we might become heirs god wants us to know him he wants us to be in the family he wants us to defeat the curse and and bridge the gap of sin and he did so through jesus christ and when that transition takes place we're given all we need to daily model a family likeness whether we're dealing with a lost world a broken culture or even within the walls of the bride of christ uh, romans 8 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of god and if children then heirs Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. I, I want my reputation and my legacy to always be that I called people to the things that God values. I believe that's my calling. I'm not called to be a casino operator, I'm called to be a preacher, okay? You know, and, and I don't think it's that complicated, but it's funny what the culture always demands. I believe I have a simple job. I believe I try to do it every Sunday that I stand in this pulpit. I also try to do it 24 hours a week, seven days a week. I, I believe I, I'm called to that. And, and I believe I answer to a kingdom because I'm a child of Christ and I'm an heir of God. And I want to be fully immersed in that kingdom as much as I possibly can be on this side of eternity until he makes all things new. And I'm willing to pay whatever price it takes to do that. And I believe, honestly... That's not just God's call for my life or my ministry or this church, but it's God's call for every believer in Jesus seated in this room and every believer around the world, to be honest with you. I believe Paul makes that very, very plain. So how are we doing this morning, friends? What decision or response would you say you have today as our musicians come? Do you need to start by accepting Christ? Do you, do you see that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you understand what He's done for you? Do you need to die to yourself uh, so that Christ in you can flourish? That may be the biggest thing that needs to happen. Just remember the truth. John the Baptist said that you must decrease so that he might increase. That's what the new birth leads to on a day-in and day-out basis. Let's respond to him this morning. Why don't you stand?